I'm so blessed to have another opportunity uh, to share God's word with you. It's always a privilege for me, and I'm so thankful for those opportunities. But I have a question. The last time I taught out of Genesis, it was a genealogy. And this morning, we have not one, not two, not three, but four genealogies that we're going to cover. Eighty names in all. So then I, in my preparation this week, I asked the Lord, Lord, did I do such a good job the last time that you want me to do it again? Or did I totally biff it and I have to keep doing it until I get it right? I don't know. But here we are this morning, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, book of beginnings. And as we look through chapter 10 and most of chapter 11, we're going to see a list of names, not just a genealogy, but also a formation of nations and people groups. And students of the Bible, you'll recognize many of these names. And what we're going to see is how these three sons of Noah set the direction of mankind for the rest of time. And by his grace, we will read all of the names. I wrestled with that this week. We know there's not one extra word in God's written word. And he had a very specific purpose for including all of the names in there. There are none that are superfluous. And I wrestled with, do I read all the names? Do we go through them, each and every one? If not, who do we leave out? And why would we do that? So by God's grace, we're going to get through these list of names and and the Lord's going to minister to our hearts through these names and to help, help facilitate that. I put together a couple of diagrams to help give us a visual of the names that we're about to read so that you're not just staring at a group, a, a wall of names, but you'll have some visuals to go along with that. So Rod, if you would please put up the first one. And and if you would like to read along, it's in Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer... Ashkenaz, Ripha, Togomar, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So we see in these first group of names of nations that were formed from the descendants of Japheth, that the world's system would become established and these nations would become end times adversaries for Israel. The world system, that's the code of morality and conduct based on their own wisdom, not on God's commands and his commandments. It doesn't recognize God as sovereign. When we see the world, 
referenced in the New Testament. This is what it's referring to. Those, those nations early on that were formed, established these world systems of commerce, of religion. They created their own religions. They worshipped their own gods. They had their own family structure, and they established their own government. And here we see a list of those names and some scripture references. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's all throughout scripture. But I've included them to kind of give you a launching point for your own study and reflection. We see Gomer and Togerma and Magog and Tubal, Meshach and Tarshish. And a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to connect the dots between these old people groups and nations and connect them to the current geopolitical entities that we see in our world today. And that's, that might be interesting and fun to do, but there's no guarantee that we would end up in the right explanation and conclusion. So we're not going to do that this morning. But just know that some of these names do appear in the end times prophecies. So these groups will rise to power when the time comes. Brought, if you would, the second diagram. We continue on in Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Tabta, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rohoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Pretty extensive list. And hopefully the, the diagram will help provide some perspective and context to the people groups that we've seen. And one thing that we see is that the nations formed through Ham's descendants would establish the world systems as well, but be early adversaries of Israel. Those world systems, secular, pagan, disobedient to God. It's interesting to note 
that the pagan influences of these ancient people groups and nations, that influence is stronger today than it was even in those Old Testament times, including even in our own country. We don't have time to go into it, but if we were to look at the beliefs of these ancient people groups and the system that they set up in all of these aspects of culture and society, they're evident today. And it started all back then. And here we see Egypt, Canaan, and Babel, which would then become Babylon, and Kesluhim, which would then become the Philistines. Again, many scripture references uh, referencing them all throughout the Old Testament. And we move on to the next rod, if you would, third one. Thank you. Starting verse 21 of chapter 10, to Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gather, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shela fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalaf, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And in this final group of names and nations, we see that one of the nations formed through Shem would eventually become Israel. Shem. That's where the word Semitic comes from to describe the Jewish people. And the nations from Japheth and Ham, left to their own free will, created new false gods, and their own systems of government, and their own beliefs. The religious practices that they engaged in had nothing to do with the Lord. And oftentimes in the Old Testament narratives, we'll see how Israel might adopt some of those pagan beliefs, and the Lord would say, I never commanded you to do that. It never even entered my mind to do the things that you're doing. That just goes to show how rebellious those other people groups were. An important takeaway, I think, from chapter 10 is this. People are either submitting to God or in rebellion against him. There's no neutral position. There's no third option. Of the three people groups, there was one that was submissive to the Lord, and striving for obedience, even though they didn't do it with perfection. 
The other two weren't. They were rebellious. None of them were neutral. And that holds true today. Are you submitting to the Lord? Are you abiding in Christ? Is he front and center in your life? Do you make decisions through the filter of God's word, what he's called you to do, who you are in Christ? If you said yes, praise the Lord. But if you're not doing that, not, again, not in perfection, but in direction, in that, in that way of going, if you're not doing that, though, you're in rebellion. Doesn't matter if you said a prayer in the past or you served at church somewhere. If you're not abiding in Christ and obeying him, you're in rebellion. There's no third option. When we look at the nations listed, not all of them were prominent at the time that Moses recorded the book of Genesis. Some played a key role in those Old Testament times, but others will play a key role in the end times. And yet Moses was directed by the Spirit to record these things for eternity. This is more evidence that the Bible is true and is indeed God's word. Because Moses wrote down things that he, in his physical sense, could not have known. Fulfilled prophecy is evidence that God's word is true. And many of us know that at least a third of Scripture is prophecy. Things recorded about events that had not yet happened at the time they were recorded. And God's word has a perfect track record of fulfilling those prophecies. Every prophetic event that was supposed to have happened by now has happened. Not one has failed. And the next on the Lord's prophetic timeline is the rapture. We see that in God's word. Today would be a great day for that to happen, even though I washed my car yesterday. Because, you know, that would be just like the Lord, right? You buy a new car and then you get raptured. But that would be okay. Now we move on to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And here we see a, a, a sequence of events that caused the dispersion that we see uh, mentioned in chapter 10. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Just want to point that out. When they embarked on building this tower, they were fully aware of God's command in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, to fill the earth. And they thought they could circumvent God's plan by taking preemptive action. How many times do we do that? We know the Lord wants us to do something. And we're like, uh, Lord, I don't want to do that, so I'm going to make myself unavailable. I'm going to make myself busy, and I can't attend to those things. We come up with a reason and an excuse not to do it. And we find out, no, if the Lord wants us to do it, it's going to happen no matter what. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city 
and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Wives, do you have husbands that have unfinished projects around the house? He isn't the first. It dates back to the Tower of Babel, an unfinished project, so cut him some slack. Now, the story, the historical narrative of the Tower of Babel is well known for the origins of language. But there's a greater takeaway from that encounter, and that is the resilient and relentless nature of sin. It didn't take long after the flood reset for man to get back to sinning. But not just personal sin. This was group sin, an organized rebellion against God. We saw that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and here we see it again in chapter 11, verse 6. And I'd like you to go back to chapter 11, verse 1, and notice, notice some key words in chapter 1. If you're inclined to write in your Bible, underline the word language, or languages, a language, and the word, word. And then go down to verse 6. Underline the word language. Languages. Verse 7, the same thing. And in verse 9, the same thing. What's missing in those verses of 6, 7, and 9? The words. Because of sin, the Lord confused the language, but he didn't change the definition of the words. It's very relevant, very important, that the words were not part of the confusion. We see the same vocabulary, the same words, in verse 1. So, when God gave them different languages, he didn't confuse their words. So, here's an example. No one knows what the one language was before the Tower of Babel, but for the sake of discussion this morning, let's assume it's Hebrew. That language had a word to define and describe a bowl, a rock, and a sandal. Now, when the Lord comes in and gives different languages to these different people groups, he gives them words respective to those same things of bowl, rock, and sandal. 
It's a different word in their language, but the definition is the same. So whether it's Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic, they each, each of these languages had the same, had a word for the same object, and it was, it was defined the same way. Standard definition for the words ensures that the gospel message is available to all people regardless of the language they speak. That was God's purpose in preserving the definition of words. But sinful man constantly redefines words to suit their needs. You're all familiar with this. The word gay used to mean happy. Now it means homosexual. The word dope used to refer to a foolish person. Then it described illegal narcotics. And today, I guess the young people use it to describe something that's cool and super. Man, that's dope. But that's what man does. They redefine words to suit whatever purposes. Man can change the definition for the words that he creates but the definitions for the words that the Lord created stand authoritative forever. Let me repeat that. Man can change the definitions for the words that he makes up, but the definitions for the words that the Lord has created stand authoritative forever. We see that in chapter 11. He has preserved the meaning of those words. But today we see man is changing the definition of words that the Lord has defined. Man, woman, marriage, life, even the name of Jesus. This is direct rebellion against the Lord at an atomic level. And with each redefinition, the ability to share the gospel is made more difficult. 25 years ago, a former president called into question the definition of the word is. More recently, a Supreme Court justice nominee was asked by a senator, can you define what a woman is? And she responded, no. Now, politicians do what politicians do in scoring a political point that could be posted on social media for political advantage. But there's an underlying danger in that answer that was not followed up. I would have asked two follow-up questions to that note. I would have asked, are you a woman? And she would have said, hopefully, yes. And then my follow-up question would be, how do you know? We need to expose the foolishness of man's wisdom. It's on display and it's on parade today. And we see, it goes right back here, Genesis chapter 11. God preserved his words, the definitions of the words that he created. And we need to stand against the culture in that and stand firm on what God's word says are the words that he has defined. He defined who a man is. He defined who a woman is. He defined marriage. He defined life. And we find Jesus in the scriptures. 
We also see things like unity and technological advances in this account of Tower of Babel. And those are neutral. It's how they're used that determines if they're sinful or righteous. The invention of brick and mortar was neutral. It wasn't a sinful thing to create brick and mortar. They could have built a monument to the Lord. But instead, they built a monument to themselves. In ancient times, warfare motivated technological advances. In modern times, it's to exploit other people. Did you know that VHS tape rentals and internet e-commerce started to thrive because they were first used by the pornography industry? These websites that we shouldn't be going to, they had to establish a way to collect money from people who want to engage in sin. So they developed e-commerce. E-commerce in and of itself is neutral, but using it to exploit people for sin is a sinful thing. VHS, VHS tape rentals, they thrived instead of Laserdisc. Laserdiscs had higher quality and they were cheaper to produce. So why did VHS tapes flourish? Because it was easier to put a VHS tape in a trench coat than a laser disc, which was a big platter. Those are just two examples. I have many more, but two examples of technology flourishing because of sin. The technology itself is neutral, but how it's used determines of whether or not it's sinful or righteous. And on the flip side, the first hospitals and universities in this country were founded by Christians. We didn't have social programs in this country. The church stepped up and provided these services, care for children, the orphans. In our family study of genealogy for a project that we're working on, Eva discovered that the state of orphanages back at the turn of the century was nothing like we've ever seen today. The church stepped up to fill the gap. The re one reason, one significant reason why there are so many social programs is because the church has fallen short. I mentioned that the great takeaway from this is the relentless and resilient nature of sin. But we see sometimes sin divides and hides. It separates one from another. It wants to keep hidden. It wants to stay secret. We look at Adam and Eve in the garden. What'd they do? They hid from the Lord as if they could hide from an omnipresent Lord. But they, they hid themselves. King David, when he was in sin, tried to hide his sin by getting Uriah killed. Trying to mask his sin until it was exposed. It's a warning for us. We're called to live life in community. If we find ourselves withdrawing from others, we need to examine ourselves to see if sin is the cause of that. Are we sinning and 
We want to hide that sin so we interact with others less so that our sin would not be found out. We're just fooling ourselves. Sin will be exposed. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We have fellowship now so that we can help one another when the storm comes. And we've experienced that. Those of us who are, who are in fellowship with one another here, we go out for coffee, we go out for lunch, we, we share events, we do things together and good times, and then a storm hits one of us. And what happens? The rest of brothers and sisters come around to help support, encourage, and provide and bear that burden. If we're not in fellowship, if we don't have those connections, and then the storm comes, that's not the time to go looking for brothers and sisters. Absolutely, if you're disconnected, cry out for brothers and sisters to come alongside and help. But it's much better. God gets more glory when we're in community, loving one another, and when the storm comes and we help one another. So be careful about being isolated. So sometimes sin divides and hides Other times, sin is loud and proud. Loud and proud, sin seeks others to join in. Nimrod had bricks and mortar. I could just picture it. Yo, what are you doing over there, stacking stones like a caveman? Come over here. We got brick and mortar, baby. Join us. Let's build this thing together. Poor Alex. He was, I was pointing at him as he was walking out the door. He thought I was talking to him. Sorry, Alex. Love you, brother. Purely coincidental. But that sin that's loud and proud gathers others together because they believe that there's safety in numbers. This month, June, is called Pride Month. It's a time when people celebrate their sin. Now, the, the, the amount, the, the types of sin that are being celebrated is far greater than when this month was first designated Pride Month. So it's no longer Gay Pride Month because there's a lot more sin that's included in this month of Pride. So they just cut it short to Pride Month to include all the other sins. They celebrate their sin. They don't divide and hide. They're loud and proud. They have parades. They celebrate. They have celebrations and and they have joy over their sin. Loud and proud. A few weeks ago, we looked at how the Lord gave mankind a sign that he would never flood the earth again. He gave us the rainbow as a reminder that he will never flood the earth again. And especially those students of our Spectrum of the Light series, this is going to be review for you. The rainbow has seven colors. Seven being the symbol of perfection. Red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, and violet. The pride flag, the original pride flag, the most prominent pride flag that's still being used today has six colors. 
one color is missing. Some of you know what that color is. The color that's missing from the pride flag is indigo. Indigo, in Scripture, is a symbol of the revelation of God. And so it's missing from their flag. They are ignoring and rejecting the revelation of God in their flag. That's a direct, that's a direct connection to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now, did they deliberately omit indigo from their flag? I don't think so. Because most Christians don't know that indigo is sometimes referred to as a symbol of the revelation of God. So I doubt that they knew it. Instead, it's a deep-seated spiritual battle that at the spiritual level they rejected indigo because it is a revelation of God. So their flag denies God. Denies that God has revealed himself in creation. Deny that God exists and that he is working through his people. We have to be careful. We have to stand firm on the truth. But we have to be loving and respectful in spite of their rebellion, in in spite of their distorting and twisting what God's word says. We are people of truth. And we need to share the truth in love. We're not confused. Shouldn't have anger, but sympathy. Because we all were once lost. If you repented and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are now saved, you're a new creation. But they are not. And that's a heavy burden to bear. Their sin is on display one way, when our, our sins were on display a different way. We had different sins. Some had the same sin. The Apostle Paul makes mention of that. But we need to have a heart of compassion for people who are lost and dying. They have a terminal illness. We all, have, we all had a terminal illness called sin. For those of us who are saved, we have received a miracle cure. The cure of the gift of Jesus. The story is not over for them yet. So we need to be clear. We need to be kind. We need to be direct and loving with the truth and not shy away from the truth. It's getting more and more difficult to stand firm on the truth. Because the world is, pull, is trying to pull us off God's word. This is not a matter of right or left, liberal, progressive, whatever, whatever conservative, whatever label you would want to call it. All of those things are systems of the world. Those pagan beliefs that we saw uh, formed by those nations in chapter 10. We are people of the truth. We stand firmly on God's word. Not what one group says that kind of sounds bible but stand firmly on the truth of God's word. And everyone's trying to pull us off into their camp. And they have justification for wanting to do that. But again, we need to stand firm and loving the truth 
of God's word. No matter how severe or pervasive sin is, it's not able to impede God's plans and purposes. I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God commanded man to disperse and fill the earth. In their free will, they defied God and chose to stay together. But their rebellion didn't stop God's plan for man to fill the earth. No one's sin can stop or slow God's plan. Not even you can mess up God's plan for you. You can make it easier or more difficult on yourself, but his plan for you in your life will be accomplished exactly as he has ordained it to. So we can either be on God's program for our lives or we could be in resistant rebellion and he's like, no, I've got a plan for you and this is going to happen. That's the choice we have. And now as we look on in chapter 11, starting in verse 10, Rod, if you would put number uh, the fourth slide on, thank you. Genesis 11, verses 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Aber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Aber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Aber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived and after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And here this visual, I think, really helps to see our first point from this section, that after the flood, lifespans quickly and dramatically shortened. Didn't take long. Why'd that happen? Scripture doesn't say, no reason was given. But, when we consider the sinfulness of man, I believe it's God's mercy that we don't live seven, eight hundred years. We won't have to struggle with sin for hundreds of years 
Fighting against sin is hard work. It's tiring. It's hurtful to be sinned against. It's heartbreaking to see others sin against others. A shorter lifespan increases the focus on the eternal. Now, we live 70, 80, 90 years. And even in that short, relatively short lifespan, many people go decades without thinking about the eternal. Some people live their entire life not thinking about the eternal. But what if the average lifespan was 800 years? Now you're 200 years old. Are you thinking about eternity? No, you're like, I got another 600 years. I have time to think about that. And in the meantime, sin rules and reigns. So I think, I think part of the Lord's plan in shortening lifespans is that we are immediately, constantly have to be faced with our mortality and eternity. Breakthroughs in medical science have increased the number of our years but not necessarily the quality of those years. We have struggles. We need more medical care. As we get older, more and more of our time is spent maintaining life, going to doctor's appointments, getting tests, waiting for tests, receiving treatments, going picking up prescriptions. A larger and larger percentage of our lives are taken up by that maintenance of life. And many of us are caring for older relatives and parents. And we do it out of love, absolutely. It's a great opportunity to, to share Christ's love in a practical way. As we get older, our, we he, it takes longer for us to heal if we heal. We don't have the mobility that we used to have. And absent the Holy Spirit in us, we might become bitter as we look back at the days of yore when we could do things like get out of bed without pulling a muscle. But yet... Those of us, I include, I include myself in that, us senior saints who have had a track record of faithfulness of God in our lives have a very unique ministry. If you've been walking with the Lord 70 years, you have that experience that the rest of us don't have of God's perfect track record of faithfulness in your life. And you need to be telling others about it. You need to be showing others about it. There's young folks in their 20s and 30s who are going through difficult times because times are more difficult today than they were 50 years ago. And the assaults against their faith are even stronger, as we've just looked at. They need encouragement. They need the relationships that we can have with them and show them, be transparent with them, how the Lord came through for us. He is perfectly faithful in our lives. He's never let us go. He's never let us down. He comes through. He makes a way when there's no way visible to our eyes. The young people need to know that. They'll see it. 
because they, if they have a relationship with us and they'll know, hey, didn't this happen to you back then? Yes, it did. And we're trusting the Lord more than ever. So there's the one side of the senior saints who have had a long track record of faithfulness, God's faithfulness in their life that they could look back and point to. On the other side of the spectrum for the senior saints, I would include my parents in that, who came to Christ when my mom was 75 and dad was 76, three years ago. They love the Lord. We have FaceTime regularly and we just laugh. We just have so much joy knowing that no matter what happens in this life, we're going to be home in heaven together with Christ. And that's when my dad's Brooklyn accent really comes out. I'm glad I don't have it anymore. But, but they, are, they are an example. If, if anyone has breath, it's not too late to repent and believe. For 75 years, they lived their life the best that they knew. And it was only when the Holy Spirit said, it's time now to repent and believe that that happened. So if you have loved ones who are not saved, don't give up hope. Keep praying. Keep sharing the love of Christ with them. Just love them. They know who you are. They know what you believe. Just love them. Have that relationship with them. Live your life as an example. When the storm comes into your life, walk righteously through the storm. People notice. People notice. And the remainder of Genesis focuses on the line of Shem. Abram in particular. So we see that the next point from this genealogy is that it draws a line of redemption to Christ. The Lord keeps his promises and preserves his plans. He is trustworthy. Tower of Babel shows that no matter how many times man no matter how many times man gets a reset, sin's going to explode and spread. The Lord could reset mankind every 10 years and sin would just... like an Arizona wildfire. So I'll leave you with this last thought. From the very beginning, man has demonstrated that he is completely incapable of reconciling himself to God. He's incapable we see throughout all the Old Testament. This is bad news. And if you're hearing this for the first time, you may not even realize how bad this news is. I mentioned earlier, you're either submitting to God or you're in rebellion. Everyone has sinned. Doing things that God has forbid, not doing things that he's commanded. That's rebellion. And there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for rebellion. There's nothing that you can do about it on your own. But there's good news. And the good news is, although we don't have a way, we couldn't make a way to be reconciled to God, God himself did. God himself made a way for people to be reconciled to God, to be adopted into his family.
And it's three simple steps. First is to recognize. Recognize that you're a sinner. Recognize that you've fallen short of what God has commanded all people to do. Recognize that God is holy and that there has to be justice and payment for those sins, for those infractions. Recognize that you can't pay that yourself other than eternity in hell, being tormented for the sins that are committed. Recognize that's your only option. But also recognize that God sent Jesus, God the Son, to come to earth, live a sinless life, fulfill the law perfectly, share the truth of the kingdom, of how to be reconciled to God. Jesus' first word was to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So recognize that Jesus lived that sinless life, that he's fully God, fully man, and he died on a cross, and that shed blood on the cross is full payment for your sins, past, present, and future, that God would receive that payment on your behalf and attribute righteousness to you, that your sin account would be stamped paid in full by Jesus. Recognize that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he rose on the third day in victory over hell, sin, and death, and that because of that, those who believe in him could have eternal life. Recognize that. Then the next step is to repent. Repent means to turn from where you're going and go in a different direction. Repent from your rebellion. Repent from living life your own way and being wise in your own eyes and doing whatever suits you. Turn from that. And if you turn from one direction, you've got to turn somewhere else. Turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. Because he and he alone was the one who paid the price that was sufficient to pay for our sins. Make that determination. Purpose in your heart. From this day forward, I am not going to live for self. I'm going to live for Christ. Jesus is going to direct my actions. He is going to direct my thoughts and words. And if you've done that and you've repented, you've turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you, and you did that with all sincerity, then receive. Receive full forgiveness for all of your sins that Jesus paid that price. You'll never be held accountable for your sins again because Jesus paid it all once and for all. So receive that full forgiveness. Receive a new heart. You'll have new desires, new interests. You'll want to do things that you rejected before. Things that draw you closer to God. Receive the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will live inside you and he will teach you. He will encourage you. He will correct you. He will exhort you. He will convict you when you go off the rails. But just as importantly, he will empower you it is the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in each and every one of us that gives us the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. We can't do it without him. The truth in this word is impossible 
to fulfill and live out absent the power of God in us. So receive the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Receive a new destination. Because you have been saved from your sin, the consequences of your sin, you're going to have a home in heaven. You don't have to be left wondering. We sang blessed assurance this morning. That is the blessed assurance. That if we abide in Christ, when we breathe our last air, no matter what happens, we will be ushered in to heaven to spend eternity with the Lord. So we receive a new destination, but we also receive a new family. You're, don't ha- you don't have to do this new life in Christ on your own. As a matter of fact, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to live in community. So you have a new family. You receive a new family. Here, brothers and sisters, who have all repented and believed and are abiding in Christ, to come alongside you and encourage you and help you to live that life as pleasing to the Lord and that you can help others. Believe it or not, if, if any of you are not a believer but repent and believe today, the Lord will soon use you to help encourage others. Do all of those three things by God's grace and you will have that assurance. And if any of you have not repented and believed but want to and you have questions, please see one of us pastors. We'll be available here this morning. Those are conversations we would love to have. We live for those conversations. So if you see us interacting with somebody else and, and you want to have that conversation, just get within eyeshot and kind of wave and point. Just, you know, it could, be, it could be a little, you know, subtle. We will drop everything to have that conversation with you. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much in Jesus' name for your holy, infallible, inerrant, eternal word. Lord, we don't know the side of heaven why you chose to include all of these names, but we know they're important to you. And if they're important to you, they're important to us. Lord, we we ask that you would bless our obedience to studying your word, each and every word, that in this coming week you will show us the value of of the genealogies, of the individuals that were named and the people groups that were named. Lord, we want to grow closer to you. We want to be more like you, Jesus. It's becoming more and more difficult as the world rejects you in even greater ways, even at the atomic level of changing the definitions of the words that you have created. Help us to be faithful, to stand firm on your word with gentleness and respect. We're not confused, Lord. You're not the author of confusion. You've given us your truth. So Lord, we ask for opportunities to be able to share that truth in love with those who desperately need to to see it and hear it. Lord, remind us that we were once lost. It's, It's so easy to get lost in the blessing and the provision, the protection, the permission that you give us as your children It's so easy to forget that we were once wretched. Lord, remind us of that, not to dwell on those days, but to have a greater appreciation of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that we would grow in humility, praising you, giving thanks to you 
unceasing praise. Lord, we fall short of that so many times. But we desire to to grow in obedience. Thank you for your patience and your love and your mercy for us as we grow in Christ-likeness. This process of sanctification often doesn't go as quickly as we would like it to. But we thank you for your patience. And we ask that we would have those opportunities to share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ with those who need it. And that we would share with one another. Lord, you told us, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So Lord, help us to love one another in even greater ways, that we be blessed by one another for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.